0: Starring John Cho, Parker Posey, and Haley Lou Richardson, Columbus is the debut feature from Koganada, whose video essays have been featured by the Criterion Collection. Columbus opens Friday, August 4th, at New York's IFC Center and LA's New Art Theater. Presented by Sundance Institute. Filmstruck is the streaming service for fans of great cinema and the exclusive streaming home for the Criterion Collection, featuring a bounty of independent and foreign titles plus original bonus material. And Filmstruck is now available on Roku. Start your free trial today at filmstruck.com. Hello and welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. My name is Violet Luca and I'm the digital producer. We're going to be dealing with what I consider at least a long and baffling film. We're going to see only part of it because the program isn't long enough to encompass the entire work. It's by Yvonne Rainer. She will be talking with uh, me, explaining uh, the film. That's filmmaker and anthropologist Robert Gardner introducing a March 1977 episode of The Screening Room, a talk show whose guests were experimental filmmakers, animators, and documentarians. Gardner had interviewed film artists like Hollis Frampton and Jonas Mikas, and even made experimental films himself, And so his confusion about Rayner's film, Christina Talking Pictures, suggests how radical her films could strike people at the time. Trained as a dancer, Rayner began making films in the early 70s that defied pre-existing notions of character, narrative, and identification. Unlike many other experimental filmmakers of the time, her films were filled with language manifested in on-screen text and long monologues. I interviewed Rainer in her kitchen in Manhattan last week about her long career. Here's our conversation.
1: Uh, my name is Yvonne Rainer. I am currently a choreographer, writer.
0: Thank you for having me. This is a real thrill. I wrote a feature about your films in the July-August issue, and revisiting them, what struck me was that you know we live in a time where people are particularly enthralled with power. I mean it's that's true of any era but especially now you know we have a strongman president yeah we have all these superhero films coming out and your no manifesto said you know no to the heroic no to the anti-heroic and so many of your films are concerned with deconstructing power relationships and so i was really moved by that could you sort of contextualize why that was Of interest to you? Well, it
1: depends on which period of my career you're talking about. The so-called No Manifesto was written, oh, in uh, 19-something, and uh, it's been uh, held to my heels uh, forever. Mm -hmm. And I wrote Manifesto Reconsidered uh, 10 or 15 years later to adjust some of those pronouncements. But no to the heroic, uh, no to the anti-heroic. Yeah, the posturing of our current president brings some of these issues into play Mm -hmm. as never before, never in my lifetime have I encountered someone so loathsome and uh, semi-literate in such a position of power in this country. And uh, it makes me embarrassed to be a a US citizen. And some of these concerns are in my current choreography. Uh, I mean, I don't dance too much anymore or move around. But there are two parallel trajectories in this current work. There are a number of texts I I want to air. very little of it written by me, but about certainly power relations is uh, involved. And I read or I stick a microphone in front of one of the dancers,
0: interrupt what they're doing, and they read also. So much of your work in the 70s was caught up in these very intense debates about representation. How should narrative exist? How should women relate in within a narrative? And now it kind of seems like just having a woman involved is enough? I mean, you know, given that these debates are still going on, do you follow this or do you, you know, do you feel sort of relieved that the expectations are a little bit less stringent or?
1: Well, just reading the daily New York Times, you can't help but be aware of these debates, especially in the op-eds and the Sunday paper, uh, that um, progress in terms of gender equality, um, has maybe progressed, but incrementally. Uh, mm-hmm. There's still still such. Uh, I, I mean, it's just the degree. I mean, there's Hillary Clinton's loss is certainly emblematic of uh, where we still are, and the white old man power structure mm-hmm. intact in, in both houses of uh, c- Congress and the Senate. So we have a long way to go uh, as far as gender is concerned
0: uh and race and yeah. class yeah there was a big deal made about the Wonder Woman movie and sort of being mm. like women can be in these yeah. superhero movies and it does you know they can right. do they can make a lot of money and it seems like yeah. that's a very grotesque victory yeah yeah um, i i
1: haven't seen the film i should go just out of curiosity Yeah, the same applies to uh, our recent black president. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, the world did not change. In fact, it got worse. Yeah. (laughs) But not entirely his fault, but uh, yeah.
0: Yeah. The politics of your parents and your brother, the um, interest in anarchism, and it's very pertinent for these times to be, not necessarily be an anarchist, but again, be like, interested in investigating how power relationships play out, what does it mean, and just even questioning the, the idea, you know, as you were talking before about Donald Trump, like, should anyone have that much power? And, and the answer would seem to be absolutely not.
1: Yeah, my anarchist past. Uh, my parents uh, um, gravitated or circulated uh, in this uh, rich and heady, uh, bohemian, anarchists, old Italians, uh, radicals, uh, this community in San Francisco. And there was a group of New York-born Jewish anarchists who came Mm -hmm. out to San Francisco, befriended my older brother, and I uh, was around them quite a bit. Um, And as uh, one of them, who's a great person, Audrey Goodfriend, I interviewed her in one of my films, and uh, she said we didn't expect major changes in our lifetime, but anarchism provided a kind of a template for thinking about social relations, mm-hmm. and uh, major changes, in, in her generation anyway, uh, were not expected. But uh, she was very active in up through her 90s. She died a couple of years ago and uh, kept the faith, so to speak. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: You've described yourself as a, a techno dummy um, many times throughout your career. Um, <laughs> so, But that naturally leads the question, how did you sort of communicate the look of certain scenes? You know, working with a cinematographer, obviously they bring a lot of technical knowledge to these things but in something like privilege when you're working with mark daniels did you use photographs did you use storyboards or
1: no i can't draw either so i never <laughs> use storyboards um i had ideas about framing uh about camera movement i've ex- been exposed to experimental and art films from my early adolescence and uh so we talked about what i wanted and uh I I and I you know I got my own back in edit the editing process. Mm-hmm. Uh, Babette I worked for, on the first couple of films with Babette Mangold and uh she taught me everything about editing and uh, uh in my first film Lives of Performers there were some parts like the rehearsal sections I just let her do what she wanted camera wise mm-hmm. and uh, it it was a felicitous collaboration
0: when you were working with babette to what extent were you aware or sort of going to see her collaborations with chantal ackerman actually
1: chantal began just around the time i was beginning mm-hmm. and and so of course i i i saw everything babette did uh including what she had done with i forget his name a, a pretty well known french uh filmmaker mm-hmm. in france um so yeah, I was aware and and uh, I was in some of Babette's own
0: films also. Mm-hmm. So obviously you know you have this you have this extensive background as a choreographer. Um when you were working with actors, what sort of direction would you give them? Would it be more movement based or would it be sort of more emotional, more actors studio method stuff? Okay. Uh
1: working with actors is a whole other ball game. Uh <laughs> It always, even after using highly professional actors in my last two films, it remains a mystery to me what they do. You know, I certainly uh, wasn't using uh, Stanislavski-type directions uh, in working with them. But, of course, it depended on the person. Like in my last film, Murder and Murder, um, I didn't have to give Kathleen Chalfant any directions at all. She just picked up and went. I let her go her own way. Joanna Merlin, the other protagonist in that film, uh, she required uh, more uh, specific directions. So I, I did my best. But uh, I, I, it's funny. I uh, Recently, a few years ago, I had lunch with Kathleen, who's in LA, after seeing a play she was in about the Armenian genocide. Mm-hmm. And she played this mother who had to witness the death of her young child in a, the most brutal way. Mm-hmm. And she became very emotional, screaming and pounding her fists. And I asked her afterwards, how how do you do that every night? I mean, what toll does it take? How do you bring all these emotions? What What's the process? I don't remember what she said, I mean, because she couldn't really explain it, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, she didn't have any theorizing about it. Uh, she just did it. And, uh, yeah, I, I, yeah it, it's a mystery to me, too.
0: Do you feel that way as a dancer, a choreographer, that there's just a certain level of something where you just can't sort of explain what you're doing?
1: Absolutely not. <laughs> uh, working with dancers is a whole other ball game. And when I ke- left film to return to dancing, it was like coming home. Uh, I mean, it's very material. It, it happens in front of your eyes. I mean, there's no dealing with intermediaries like the laboratories and all yeah. that. And I have the same training. So I know what's involved with uh, working in a very intimate way, working with the body. And I do ask of them in in this current work to uh, emote, but it's like a a parody of emotional expression. It's always very distantiated. Certainly, there's no uh, uh, method in terms of uh, Stanislavski involved. Mm. Uh, Yeah, it's a, a very different kinds of relationship. Yeah.
0: You brought up murder and murder. When I was writing the feature, I felt really bad because that's probably one of my favorites. Um, not to pick among your children, which are the favorites, but like I feel bad that I couldn't give that more space because I think that's really fascinating place to sort of leave off. Where did the idea for the two ghosts, the um, ghosts, sort of to yeah. preside over the narrative yeah. come from?
1: Well, they're the audience to the story as it unfo- unfolds, and the real, uh, un, uh, they witness the complexity of the relationship between the two women. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't I don't know exactly where that came from. Like one is the younger, Mildred manifestation of one of the women, mm-hmm. and the other is the deceased mother of mm-hmm. the other. So uh these two have a also have a kind of complicated relationship like um, Mildred the younger of the two women is giving a lecture and the two ghosts are sitting <laughs> in the classroom they're the only ones in the classroom and uh uh the mother of Doris falls asleep she's old and uh the younger persona of Mildred keeps prodding her to wake up. So there there are two sets of uh, relationships there that uh, continue throughout the film.
0: Yeah, one of the funnier sequences. I mean, I think, again, uh, humor has a huge place in all of your work, but I think Murder and Murder is very angry about certain things, but then there's also like this definite strain of humor that runs through it, and um, the sequence where... The different people are answering the telephone and sort of like receiving or giving off gossip, and then mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. you appear
1: the public public phones. Yes, yes yeah.
0: the mm-hmm. the long deceased uh, public phones that no longer exist. Yeah, right. <laughs> but mm-hmm. and you appear in a tuxedo and butch, butch, very mm-hmm. butch. Yes, mm-hmm. that's where I'm going with this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Hold on, okay. we're gonna get there. Okay. I swear. But that is the the moment where you know you undo your tuxedo and you reveal your mastectomy Mm. it's like a really powerful moment and um the discussion about health and privilege too Mm. seems like such a um like a rare thing to to touch on in narrative film Mm. Mm. and I guess when you were working on those projects obviously they're both you know very different how political did you feel those were
1: yeah I had a mastectomy in 19 early 90s Then it hasn't recurred. Um, Cancer hasn't recurred. Um, But there was a point, um, again, the New York Times, the Sunday Magazine, Mm -hmm. somewhere in the early 90s, there was a woman on the cover Mm -hmm. who revealed her scarred chest. It was shocking. I mean, who had ever seen that Mm -hmm. before except someone, a doctor or someone who had been exposed to cancer so that was the beginning for me thinking and especially after i was diagnosed so to the scene well there are two versions of this kind of exposure in murder and murder Uh, one is the boxing match i in a robe take off one side of my robe to reveal and make a speech i can't remember exactly what it was it was about mastectomy. And and uh, the reverse shot is Mildred and Doris in boxing gear mm-hmm. about to have a, a, a fight. Uh, and on the floor of the boxing match are statistics about uh, breast cancer, what percent of the population survives and doesn't and all that. And you can get glimpses of this as they uh, engage in this fight. There's a clinch where they complain about each other. I mean, <laughs> it's a very contentious period in their relationship. And suddenly the phone rings and Doris goes to a corner and uh, and seems very pleased with what she's hearing. What? Uh, oh, great. Uh, she hangs up and she turns around and... Uh, Mildred has gone to her corner. She says, Mildred, we got a cat. <laughs> so, <laughs> so it, you know, it's like serious things dealt with in a very, with a very light touch. And that contradiction throughout the film of uh, serious matters and, uh, and yet uh, comedic uh, interactions.
0: And, yeah. We're going to take a quick break, and then we'll be right back. Starring John Cho, Parker Posey, and Haley Lou Richardson, Columbus is the debut feature from Cogonata, whose video essays have been featured by the Criterion Collection. Set in Columbus, Indiana, which boasts some of the country's most significant mid-century architecture, the film follows recent high school grad Casey, who lives with her mother, and Jin, a visitor from the other side of the world. Columbus opens Friday, August 4th, at New York's IFC Center and LA's New Art Theater. Tickets are on sale now. Check columbusthemovie.com for more info. Presented by Sundance Institute. Now you can stream critically acclaimed films and cult favorites from the world's greatest film libraries with Filmstruck. Filmstruck is the streaming service for fans of great cinema and the exclusive streaming home for the Criterion Collection. Filmstruck brings you a bounty of independent and foreign titles, updated weekly, plus original bonus material and expert commentary. And Filmstruck is now available on Roku. Roku. Start your free 14-day trial today at filmstruck.com. Why did you choose a boxing match, of all things, to represent this tussle between lovers? Because there are a lot of different ways, I guess, to represent that.
1: Well, I certainly wasn't going to, I wasn't dealing with a, a re- realistic uh, or illusionistic uh, representation, and I never have been, and... uh I mean, it's one reason I I left filmmaking, to go on making this kind of film. I I couldn't raise money anymore, Mm -hmm. and I wasn't going to cross over into more conventional uh, modes of making. So, I I mean, what better way to have a fight between a a domestic, in a domestic situation, Mm -hmm. you know? Uh,
0: Yeah. Later in life, you had an epiphany that you were lesbian and you know you started having a relationship with a woman and this film is very much dealing with that out of any way to represent that change you said before you decided to have a very butch look why did you feel that was important to be butched up yes Uh, well i i uh, my character
1: was i was the mc Mm. so i wanted to present myself in a double way uh, very formally cross-gender and also, in the later, do I, uh, I, f- I even forget now, am I revealed throughout, or no, only in the later scenes. Mm-hmm. In the tuxedo, one part is cut away, so you right. see my chest, yeah, the scarred chest. So it served a dual purpose Mm -hmm. yeah
0: you mentioned that you started having trouble getting enough funding together for a film have you ever been interested in returning to it if because things cost a little less now Mm. you know you could technically shoot it with a smartphone let's say
1: not me (laughs) (laughs) i mean i i'm still a, a dummy with the smartphone with the computer and a publication of essays just came out from a European publisher, and I uh, actually paid a good deal of money to the New Yorker to use two cartoons, and one of them is of a man about to s- with a chair over his head about to smash a computer, <laughs> and that's that is the way. That's my relation to any technological uh, device. Yeah
0: believe in an essay you had written about your hesitancy to call your work feminist or even call yourself feminist and that you would at that time you sort of viewed your problems through the lens of having a difficult childhood let's say um and you you know like the importance of psychoanalysis and in journeys from berlin the role of psychoanalysis is very front and center but i guess how how else would you say it has influenced your film work because you know psychoanalysis is sort of turning your life into a narrative.
1: Uh okay, that's a complicated question. It is dealing with feminism and uh therapy. Uh yeah, I I had a long history of therapy, not traditional psychoanalysis. But then the feminists came along in the 70s. Mm-hmm. Uh Laura Mulvey's famous essay on uh psychoanalysis and film, uh, Hollywood films especially. So that was very influential. It it gave me permission to look into my own life and use uh, autobiographical elements. But in Journeys from Berlin, that situation, the therapist is played alternately by uh, a middle-aged man, white man. Mm a middle-aged white woman and an eight-year-old white boy, a child. Mm-hmm. It offered an opportunity for uh, Annette Michelson uh, to have these long monologues, not based on psychoanalysis, but a surreal stream of consciousness, you might say, about all kinds of things, political, personal, mm-hmm. et cetera. So, and with all this stuff happening in the background in this huge space, yeah. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't, oh yeah, my my call, not calling myself a feminist, and some people thought I was anti-feminist. It, in the early 70s, I thought I wasn't entitled to call myself a feminist because I thought of, feminists as being uh, on the barricades you know uh, much more militant and activist than I was so but it was only you know I gradually it wasn't that I was anti-feminist
0: right right because there was sort of a famous interview like a group interview you did with camera obscura where they were sort of trying to put a interpretation on your film and you pushed back but yeah yeah um I mean, would you say therapy? You know, your experiences in therapy or just the act of therapy itself, you know, influenced other films of yours. Uh, well, because they are very yeah. obviously personal. Yeah,
1: yeah. It's some. It's kind of misleading. I I use other people's autobiography. Also, There are a lot of contributions in there from other sources. Of course, the basic through line is my the details of my life, but it's always camouflaged or undermined or uh, juxtaposed with others. For instance, in The Privilege, the series of paragraphs you read during the aria Who Speaks? and uh, There's one paragraph that comes from um, Martha Rossler, the artist, gave it to me about sitting on a bus looking through a National Geographic, and she pauses on a photo of an African man in full tribal dress, and a black woman, who she doesn't know, sitting next to her, says, what a handsome man. Mm -hmm. And for this young, inexperienced uh, white girl, it was a revelation that a man like that could be called handsome, you know? Right, right. so that was not my experience. but and there are other examples of that I could give.
0: In Privilege, you, you chose to make the female director in the film African-American, but share your first name and sort of guide this um, woman who keeps sort of having hot flashes and then mm-hmm. hot flashbacks mm-hmm. uh, through this memory. Could you talk about that decision?
1: That's a complicated film in terms of getting it done it, it was again this problematic: of uh, who is entitled to speak for whom? I, childless, middle-aged, white woman, speaking for black experience, and uh, so I, I nearly gave it up in the middle, and, and but I persevered. Um, so th- there develops this um, interview situation and Yvonne Washington, who at the very beginning, the this, there's a second title, a film by Yvonne Washington and others. Mm-hmm. It, it's the film within the film, right. and uh, this flashback of uh, and commentary about a, a rape by a Puerto Rican man on the Alice Spivak uh, plays the person being interviewed, and mm-hmm. her name is Jenny in the film. She plays herself as this middle-aged woman in the same clothing, in Mm -hmm. fact, while everyone around her is different and younger. But it was a complicated story. uh, This was my story, of course, uh, living on the Lower East Side and uh, in an all-white building on a Puerto Rican block. There was this couple next door who had fights and uh, got drunk one night, crawled across the air shaft, and accosted a neighbor. And her neighbors started screaming, and uh, Jenny calls the cops, and then there's a trial, and uh, okay, it goes on like that. But uh, it was an opportunity to uh, put words in the mouths of the black and Puerto Rican characters Mm -hmm. uh, about, in a theoretical and... uh, educated way that they uh, that they would not have spoken so that was the problem i mean like the a Puerto Rican uh, would be rapist uh, speaks foucault you know right. so it was not it wasn't meant to be realistic but to bring up issues and allowing or forcing you might say uh, improbable characters to speak these issues in a, in a way they never would have yeah
0: right we can end there, but before we do, what what is a film that you've seen recently that you've liked?
1: Oh, oh yeah, uh, very recently. Uh, a German filmmaker, Heinz Emicholz, mm-hmm. who uh, makes films about architecture, but he did this film uh, called Streetscapes, and uh, he films... As background many different kinds of architecture in South america in europe uh but in front of the, uh, what he did i mean it's very interesting he he was in Israel, and he uh, in one of his talks uh there was a psychoanalyst in the audience who approached him and They had a discussion, and the analyst agreed to uh, have sessions with him every day for a certain period. And Heinz went to him and recorded the sessions Mm -hmm. and made transcripts and put these and hired, actually a friend of mine, John Erdman, who's worked with me, and uh, someone else to play two people who have a discussion in front of these uh, architectural backgrounds neither one is a professional actor and what came out is, is fascinating it's about 2 hours long and uh, I, I was very taken with it
0: all right well thank you so much sure Antonio. you've been listening to the film comet podcast sponsored by columbus starring john cho parker posey and haley lou richardson columbus is the debut feature from kogonada whose video essays have been featured by the Criterion Collection. Columbus opens Friday, August 4th, at New York's IFC Center and LA's New Art Theater, presented by Sundance Institute. We're also sponsored by Filmstruck. Filmstruck is the streaming service for fans of great cinema, and is the exclusive streaming home for the Criterion Collection. Filmstruck brings you a wealth of independent and foreign titles, along with original bonus material and expert commentary. And did I mention it's now available on Roku? Start your free 14-day trial today at FilmStruck.com. The Film Comment podcast is produced by Violet Luca and Nicholas Repold and edited by Michael Odmark. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher. Film Comment is a bi-monthly magazine published by the Film Society of Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comment has featured in-depth reviews, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, art house, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us at filmcomet.com slash subscribe to purchase a digital or print subscription to the magazine or check out our app available on Android, iOS, and Kindle at filmcomet.com slash app. Film Comet, at the heart of film culture for over 50 years.